Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Julie Arafe, Simulation Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. Obstetrics. The topic of this podcast is a discussion about massive obstetric hemorrhage. My guest today is Dr. Alan Frankfurt. Alan, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Of course. First, thank you for having me, Julie. It's been a long time since we've been talking about critical care and obstetric issues. Um, yes. I'm an anesthesiologist um, by trade uh, and training. Uh, I started doing primarily obstetric anesthesia in 1989. I uh, graduated from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School here in Dallas in 1981 and then immediately started an ER residency at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. And after completing that, I started an anesthesia residency at Parkland Hospital in Dallas and a uh, neuroanesthesia fellowship at Parkland as well. Uh, I became interested in, in the physiology of hemorrhage and shock, first as a Parkland resident, spending many hours in the trauma room, and then in Detroit as an ER resident, and finally in the neuro room, uh, taking care of patients with uh, aneurysms and AVMs. From 1985 to 1999, and then from 2014 to 2019, I was in the U.S. Navy Reserves and really had an opportunity to watch, especially during uh, Desert Storm back in the early 90s, uh, a crystalloid-based fluid resuscitation of, of wounded uh, warriors. And then uh, fast forward to the early 2000s during the global war on terror in both Iraq and Afghanistan, got to watch this crystalloid-based fluid resuscitation change into what became the massive transfusion protocol and ultimately whole blood. Lastly, I uh, was able to... Uh, get some exposure uh, at a, with a group called THOR, T-H-O-R, which is Trauma Hemostasis Research Network, uh, composed of tremendous thought leaders and uh, people on the cutting edge of hemorrhage physiology and resuscitation who apply their translational research to patient care and is directly benefiting the OB population uh, as we speak. People like Gare Strandes, Phil Spinella, Andre Cap, Don Jenkins, John Holcomb, and, and Mark Yazy, to name a few. Today, we resuscitate OB patients with a massive sector hemorrhage based on principles paid for in the blood by our veterans of the global war on terror. The military physicians who collected the data and did the research have spearheaded our transition from clusteroids to early plasma and platelet administration and now to whole blood, which I believe we'll be, we, will, we will be using in the OB population with greater frequency. I just salute your work and the work of all the people who continue to learn more and and certainly all respect to the the people who are fighting these wars and and how they're contributing in so many ways that we don't even think about. Um Alan and I often get together and chat about interesting OB situations. And recently Dr. Stephanie Martin and I uh, recorded a podcast about hemorrhage, and with his interest in volume resuscitation and resuscitation um, during massive hemorrhage, Alan called me, and I just thought he had so many interesting insights into obstetric hemorrhage that we could apply that I, I wanted to do a podcast with him. And one of the things that Alan said is OB patients are very re resilient. 
in light of OB hemorrhage, can you briefly describe what you meant by that, Alan? Sure. The physiologic changes of pregnancy will convey to the parturient a preemptive protective role during periods of hemorrhage. And these unique physiologic cha- changes provide an insight on key resuscitative principles, as well as serving as guiding resuscitative principles that the provider should be knowledgeable of. Though these protective physiologic changes of pregnancy can provide a greater buffer between the onset of maternal hemorrhage and shock, they also can lull the provider into a false sense of security. So if we go back and and briefly look at the physiologic changes of pregnancy that we've all been schooled on, they fall into two broad categories. One, there's a 50% increase in the pregnant patient's blood volume by the 32nd week of pregnancy. Both there's an absolute increase in plasma and red cells with more plasma than red cells giving rise to what we call the anemia of pregnancy. But it's important to understand that there's an absolute increase in the red blood cells as well. Second, the pregnant patient has an increased clotting capacity and all clotting factors will increase except for factors 11 and 13, which stay the same as their pre-pregnant levels or slightly uh, slightly lessened. Factor 11 helps generate thrombin, so lower levels of factor 11 um, during hemorrhage uh, may decrease further and decrease the ability for the blood to clot. But particularly factor 13 is essential for clot strength, clot stabilization that occurs through fiber and cross-linking. So any decrease in factor 13 should be supported during major obstetric bleeding with cryoprecipitate. I think that's a great point because um, looking at the physiology and then utilizing the what we have available, such as cryoprecipitate, I think that helps make a decision when you're giving those blood products Oh, okay, yeah, I know I'm going to use cryoprecipitate because I know that needs to be enhanced in the severely hemorrhaging patient. Well, now let's recap the case study that Stephanie and I presented a couple podcasts ago. Here are the case highlights. We have a 37-year-old Gravita 1 at 39 weeks admitted for induction, unremarkable past history, Prenatal care is uncomplicated. Hemoglobin on admission was 12, and she received an epidural for pain management. This is the first interesting point you made about this case. The effect an epidural has, and I I didn't, I don't really think about that. So could you elaborate on that? So we need to differentiate between the sympathetic block and sensory block when we're doing anesthesia for cesarean section. A T1 through T4 sympathetic block of the cardiac accelerator fibers will result from a T4 sensory block. And that T4 sensory block is the anesthetic level that's required for satisfactory anesthesia during a cesarean section. So when we obtain that normal T4 sensory block, we've actually blocked the cardiac accelerator factors, uh, uh, fibers, I'm sorry. So that T4 sensory block may block the nerves that control the sympathetic nervous system to the heart that can result in bradycardia, 
meaning two of the main compensatory mechanisms during hemorrhage, increasing heart rate and vasoconstriction are blunted now. A T4 sensory block in the absence of pre-block volume expansion is very similar to doubling the size of a swimming pool without adding extra water. The pressure against the pool wall decreases and is similar to the volume of blood returning to the heart decreasing without timely volume replacement. There's going to be a fall in cardiac output and possibly heart rate. So that is why we do the preload. Correct. But you have interesting thoughts about the preload as well. Yeah. This whole talk about sensory levels and sympathetic levels can get a little bit confusing, but I think the point is that it's important to provide for a timely and adequate preload support, which I'm talking about volume administration now, prior to the implementation of a C-section regional anesthetic. So let's Look what happens to IV crystalloid fluids when we administer them to a patient. It's important, in fact, it's critical to appreciate the fact that when we give an IV crystalloid fluid bolus, only about 50% of the IV fluid will remain in the intravascular space after 30 minutes. And this is important to appreciate during pregnancy. As Dr. Martin stated in a previous podcast, the colloid oncotic pressure is normally decreased in pregnancy meaning the ability to keep fluid in the intravascular space is decreased. Because of a decreased colloid oncotic pressure, crystalloid may have a very limited amount of time in the intravascular space, requiring repeated infusions of crystalloid in order to maintain blood pressure and prevent further decreases in colloid oncotic pressure. Because of decreased colloid oncotic pressure, crystalloids may have a limited amount of time in the intravascular space. Repeated infusions of crystalloid may not only be required to maintain blood pressure, but may also further decrease colloid oncotic pressure. So we've spoken before, Julie, about how I prefer to volume load patients before a regional block for cesarean section. And I just want to emphasize my way is just one way of, of, of volume loading a patient, but however one chooses to carry that out, and you can have your own opinions you just can't have your own physiology. So consider that a volume preload prior to a C-section spinal epidural is about 2,000 cc's of lactated ringers. After 30 minutes, only 1,000 cc's of lactated ringers may remain intravascular. And after 60 minutes, only 500 cc's of the original two liter preload remains intravascular. So when we preload our OB patients prior to a C-section block is as important as how much we preload them with. So my routine is uh, with the first bag of IV crystalloid uh, that's hanging in the labor room prior to moving the patient back to the operating room, uh, I keep those fluids at basically a keep open rate. Once we decide to move to the operating room for her uh, regional anesthesia and operative delivery, Prior to leaving that labor room, bag one is placed on a pressure bag and administered as quickly as I can. And bag two is hung on a pressure device as well. Upon arrival in the operating room, the patient's positions and monitors are applied. Her back is prepped and a regional anesthetic equipment is set up while bag two is infusing under pressure. 
So the patient has received roughly 1,500 to 2,000 cc's of IV crystalloid in a 15 to 20 minute time frame prior to the block. So during periods of significant maternal hemorrhage, the use of IV crystalloids not only dilute normally occurring plasma proteins such as albumin in the bloodstream, which is needed to maintain the health of a functional endothelium, which is the inner lining of blood vessels throughout the, with, throughout the body, excuse me, but this large amount of IV crystalloid is also potentially dangerous during maternal obstetric hemorrhage. An aggressive crystalloid administration in the face of maternal hemorrhage can be deleterious for the following reasons. One, IV fluid does not remain in the intravascular space very long. There's no sustained intravascular volume expansion in the face of ongoing hemorrhage. Also, IV, IV crystalloids can result in dysfunction of the endothelium if the patient has severe hemorrhage and shock. IV fluids are often hypothermic or they're cold. They're often acidotic compared to the pH of blood. IV fluids do not carry oxygen, they do not make a clot, and they can uh, result in the loss of the endothelial glycocalyx, which we'll talk about in just a moment, which is essentially damage to the blood vessel uh, cells lining, I'm sorry, damage to the endothelial cells lining the blood vessels. So, you know, what I find interesting is, I I think it's important in, in, in light of what you just said, for nurses to be very cognizant of the fact of how many liters of IV fluid are going in the patient, how many liters of IV fluid has that patient had. And at times when you're running a bolus and you're busy doing other things, it can get away from you. But we always emphasize the importance of keeping track of volume, keeping track of input. And I think this just underscores that particularly if a patient then develops significant bleeding later. You ready to go back to the patient? Sure. Okay. Um, So this patient does indeed have cesarean birth uh, due to arrest of of descent. Infant is healthy. So back to that intraoperative intake and output, Estimated blood loss, they did not measure blood loss, but estimated blood loss was 700, urine output 200 mLs, lactated ringers 1,200, um, uh, and going by what you said, if we're one hour into this case, in the absence of additional IV fluids, really only about 300 of the original IV fluid may be in the patient's intravascular space. So post-op, vital signs in the post-anesthesia care unit are blood pressure 114 over 59, pulse of 130, respiratory rate of 16, and SpO2 of 97%. Now, this brings us to our next discussion point. These vital signs might be a little bit confusing. We really have an elevated maternal heart rate. So the vital signs can be somewhat normal with the exception of that heart rate. I recommend using mean arterial pressure or MAP, M-A-P, to evaluate blood pressure. That number is the one in parentheses following the blood pressure on the automatic blood pressure reading. 
MAP is a non-invasive indicator of perfusion, and it doesn't change. It's not affected by pregnancy. We know that the mean arterial pressure needs to be 65 or greater to support perfusion. When you calculate this patient's MAP, it's 77. Um, and a heart rate of 130 does trigger maternal early warning criteria and requires, in my opinion, a discussion with the charge nurse and the provider and increased surveillance by the nurse, which is what, what I mean by increased surveillance is more frequent vital signs assessment with heart rate and respiratory rate counted for a full minute with your stethoscope. And the reason I recommend that is because as patients begin to deteriorate, their heart rates and respiratory rates can become a bit more irregular. So you're going to be more accurate counting for a full minute with your stethoscope. Is there anything else you would add to that? Well, I think first we're obligated to find a etiology for the tachycardia. I think it's critical to understand the difference between pressure and perfusion. Shock is an emergent state resulting from inadequate tissue perfusion, but per tissue perfusion is much more difficult to assess than measuring a blood pressure, which providers use as a surrogate for, for, for perfusion. Tissue perfusion is determined by three physiologic parameters. Number one, the volume of blood being pumped by the heart or the cardiac output in cc's of blood per minute. Number two, the amount of hemoglobin in the blood. And three, the amount of oxygen dissolved in plasma and bound to hemoglobin, such as the O2 saturation. Measurement of pressure with an automated blood pressure machine is quick, it's easy, and often the best non-invasive, quote, perfusion, unquote, modality available to the provider when we're making clinical decisions regarding the adequacy of cellular perfusion. It's important to understand that the mean arterial pressure with a non-invasive cuff is a measured value. The systolic and diastolic values are calculated based on proprietary algorithms of that particular machine. So the non-invasive systolic and diastolic blood pressure values are less accurate than a mean arterial pressure value when compared to invasive monitoring values. In fact, diastolic blood pressure is the least accurate value of the three pressures determined by a non-invasive blood pressure machine. And it's critical, as you said, to understand that a mean arterial pressure of 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury is the minimum target value that we believe ensures adequate tissue perfusion. It's generally agreed upon that maintaining a normal mean arterial pressure, O2 saturation, and particularly the hemoglobin level is key when evaluating the adequacy of tissue perfusion, particularly during a maternal hemorrhage. Another potentially helpful piece of information to examine when evaluating maternal hemorrhage for the presence of shock and the need for early blood product administration is the shock index. The shock index is nothing more than the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure. And it is used frequently in trauma patients, less frequently in obstetric patients. But I think it may have an important role as an additional piece of information as we move forward in trying to understand our hemorrhaging parturient uh, more fully. In a non-obstetric non patient, shock index values between non-obstetric and obstetric patients. In a non-obstetric patient, the normal shock index is 0.5 to 0.7. And if we simply take normally our 
pulse or heart rate of 80 beats a minute and divide it by our normal systolic blood pressure, 80 over 120, gives us a value of 0.6. So that's about the normal range in a non-obstetric patient. In our obstetric patient, the normal range is a little bit higher, which is 0.7 to 0.9. So the the value potentially, at least in this uh, American Journal of Obstetric and Gynecology article from 2019, finds with shock index is that a shock index value of greater than 0.9 in a bleeding obstetric patient was associated with an increased need for blood transfusion in that patient and progression possibly to a more severe hemorrhage. I, I view the shock index in an OB patient as just another early warning indicator that all might not be well with that patient. In fact, I use it as a fifth vital sign in patients I'm worried about with regard to hemorrhage. And I trend that value, that that shock index value, just like I would trend any other vital sign. So actually, Julie, this patient doesn't have one abnormal vital sign. She has two. Her heart rate's 130 and her her shock index is 1.14. So maybe this patient is somebody, as you said, we ought to keep an extra sharp eye on and maybe even observe in labor and delivery for an extra hour or two. I love the um, addition of parameters that help you really decide what is the best thing to do for the patient. Because, you know, looking at this, uh, someone might say, well, her heart rate's 130. She just had a baby. She's, you know, she's, you know, excited. She's, she's stressed out. And I always love when Stephanie says, yeah, you lay in bed and try to get your heart rate up to 130. It's really hard to lay in bed and get your heart rate up to 130. So, um, I love the idea of using the shock index as just another piece of information to help you figure out what's going on. So back to the patient now. This is an hour later. She's having moderate to heavy lochia, no clots. Scale was retrieved, and now they're starting to weigh the blood uh, loss. She's given methogen, and her QBL is 470 mLs. Blood pressure is 102 over 56, and I went ahead and calculated mean arterial pressure and shock index, um, even though they weren't utilized originally for the rest of this case. And the mean arterial pressure is now 71, pulse is 136, and the shock index is 1.3. 10 minutes later, they measure another 380 milliliters that's a cumulative of 850 in the post-anesthesia care unit, plus the 700 estimated in the surgery for a total of 1,550 mLs. They uh, also give mesoprostol, 800 micrograms rectal. And at that time, this is 10 minutes later, Blood pressure is 119 over 59 with a mean arterial pressure of 79. Pulse is 150 and shock index is still 1.3. The nurse at this time calls the OB who's at home, gives report, and the only order is to keep the OB posted. So now we have a patient with a cumulative blood loss of 1,550 mLs, tachycardia, um, a mean arterial pressure of 79. 
And for me, it always helps me to understand what's going on with this patient physiologically, because that helps me to remember what to do next and how concerned to be. So can you kind of go through what you think physiologically is happening with the patient at this time? Sure. Uh, I'd like to start with kind of where, you know, if I rolled in on this patient, what would be going through my, my head? Well, first of all, She's got two abnormal vital signs. Uh, a pulse of 150 is, you know, getting getting on up there. You know, I don't know how fast your heart rate would have to be to compromise your diastolic filling time and, and your cardiac output. But a pulse of 150, you know, I'm going to have a hard time ignoring, especially uh, in the face of a, of a rising shock index. She's lost a little over 1,500 cc's of blood, and that's just blood that we know of because I always keep in the back of my head, is there – some more bleeding going on that I can't see. So that 1,500 cc's of blood is about three units of blood. She started out with uh, a hemoglobin of 12. So now her new hemoglobin, I would think, would be around nine grams per deciliter. I'd probably go ahead and check some labs at a minimum a hemoglobin because if it came back seven instead of nine, anticipating that it would be closer to nine, then I know something's going on. I check a fibrinogen, which is very protective. I'm sorry, predictive in uh, in obstetric patients. And I check a PTPTT, and we can get into a little bit why I particularly check uh, clotting and fibrinogen in terms of looking for a way to predict who's going to get sicker. At this point, it's possible an hour, hour and a half into this, the regional block may be wearing off a little bit. The patient's ability to increase her systemic vascular resistance may be returning, which may augment her mean arterial pressure. Uh, reading in the face of hypovolemia, but she's also gotten some methogen and some cytotec, and that may actually bump her blood pressure as well. I think it's critical when we start looking at uh, estimated blood loss is to really understand how much blood a pregnant lady really has. So uh, a normal non-pregnant person has a blood volume of about seven to 70 to 75 cc's per kilo. Uh, a, a normal blood volume in a OB patient is closer to 80 to 85 cc's per kilo. Once again, understanding that blood volume is increased by the third trimester. So this patient probably has a blood volume of about 5,500 to 6,000 cc's. Uh, she's lost already 1,500 cc's, which is about 25% of her estimated blood volume. And if we're actually off even by 500 cc, she's now up to a two liter blood loss, which is moving into the severe category of a, an obstetric hemorrhage. Um, but I think certainly uh, a 1500 cc QBL with the possibility of ongoing bleeding or certainly somebody who's already lost two liters of blood requires the provider to take action of some type to successfully intervene in what's becoming or has developed into a severe obstetric hemorrhage. And by that, I mean somebody who's lost a couple liters of blood already, is moving through this three to four to five gram drop in hemoglobin, and somebody who certainly is looking like they're going to need a transfusion. Um, I think it's important, too, with these young, healthy patients who have tolerated a pregnancy and the physiologic demands of pregnancy for, for 10 months, that a decrease in blood pressure and an increase in heart rate, when you see it, is certainly worrisome. But these patients can really be pretty sick without drastically changing their systolic blood pressure and heart rate. These OB patients, as you said, Julie, are resilient until they're not. So you got to somewhat trust your experience and look at all the parameters and evidence that you can garner 
and see how they're trending and what you think may be going on. So a blood loss above a critical level, level which I feel strongly is 2,500 cc's in this patient, which is 40% of our estimated blood volume, results in one, a significant loss in circulating blood volume. And you have to understand she's losing whole blood. She's not losing components of an MTP. She's losing whole blood. So she's losing volume, which is going to decrease her cardiac output. She's losing hemoglobin, which is carrying oxygen to her tissue. She's losing clotting factors and platelets, which dictate her ability to initiate and form a strong clot. And in summary, she is hypoperfusing her tissues because of a decrease in oxygen delivery. And this decrease in oxygen delivery to the tissues below a critical level is when cells move from an aerobic to an anaerobic metabolism. And now the patient is in shock. The development of an anaerobic metabolism is really the definition of shock. And when that patient begins accumulating an oxygen debt because of that oxygen delivery failure, and it's key to understand that that debt has to be repaid. In addition to hypoperfusion of her tissues, she will develop what we call an endotheliopathy, which means the endothelial cells lining the blood vessels begin to no longer function normally. So the definition of shock is an oxygen delivery failure with an accumulation of an oxygen debt, and this oxygen debt has to be repaid. As a consequence of that oxygen delivery failure, there's also the development of an endotheliopathy. And what that means is, is that the drop in cardiac output and oxygen content in the blood, shock, leads to endothelial, endothelial ischemia and loss of normal endothelial function due to shedding of what we call the endothelial glycocalyx. And it's important, Julie, to to bring this topic up regarding the endothelial glycocalyx because it is a critical component of the normal blood vessel linings that ensure its normal function. The endothelium is a single layer of cells which line our blood vessels and lymphatic system. And really the critical importance of a normal endothelium and endothelial function is greatly underappreciated. This endothelial glycocalyx is a normal component of the endothelium is kind of like a fur coat that the endothelial cells wear that separate the endothelial cells from the circulating liquid, liquid blood. Loss of this endothelial glycocalyx results in, one, a pro-inflammatory state as neutrophils have direct contact with the endothelium and are activated. Two, platelet dysfunction. Three, Protein C activation with the generation of plasmin, which has a proteolytic effect upon key clotting factors. And finally, loss of an endothelial barrier function. And this all culminates in the production of a coagulopathy that we see in patients who are experiencing shock. So I, I think this is really important because if you've ever wondered why patients who are bleeding become at risk for a disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, and that's always been confusing to you, this is it. And you may not remember all of this. Um, this is a lot of physiology, but for those of us who are just physiology nerds and, and love to understand why something is happening, 
this explains it. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Um, if you look at blood as the largest organ in the body, people who bleed go through three very distinct phases. One is failure of oxygen delivery, which leads to abnormal function of the endothelium that culminates in coagulopathy. And that's blood uh. failure. So loss of two liters of blood or more by QBL, the patient's really now lost her protective physiologic adaptive safety net that normally accompanies pregnancy. She's now what I would call the routine trauma patient, and she needs to be treated as such. At two liters of blood loss, standard coagulation tests such as PT, PTT, and fibrogens begin to move outside of normal ranges. In fact, one study demonstrated that early changes in fibrinogen and the PTT for a given QBL may identify patients at risk for the need for blood products and or severe hemorrhage. For example, if you have a patient who has a QBL and her PTT is greater than 39 and her fibrinogen is already less than two, for a 2000 cc blood loss, that identified the patient who was at risk for a greater maternal hemorrhage and, and, and uh, a worse outcome. Some places do won't get the labs necessarily because of the prolonged turnover time and have used this uh, visoelastic studies like TEG and ROTEM. Uh, in, in our institution, we use TEG, and I think it's just important to understand whether you're using TEG or ROTEM, that normal TEG values for the trauma patient is an abnormal value for the pregnant patient. And that when you evaluate these TEGs and ROTEMs, they have to be done within the light of what's normal for a pregnant patient. And, and it's easy to get lulled um, into thinking that, well, I got the TEG back and the MA value, which is the clot strength, is normal when really that would be an abnormal value for a pregnant patient. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, those things are so important, particularly when you're working with someone who's not familiar with obstetrics and they're looking at values saying, well, this all looks normal. When you can speak up and let them know what's abnormal for pregnancy, that that's crucial. So when you, uh, I think you asked me earlier, how would I approach this lady? And, and mm -hmm. I, I, um, uh, used to work with some guys who said it's really important to prep the battlefield for success. And I think in this patient, I would ask myself, is the bleeding going on? Is it possible I'm not seeing all the bleeding that's taking place because it's in her uterus or it's in her abdominal cavity? Am I ability, you know, am I able to assess the rate of blood loss? How quickly is she losing blood? Is it time to change her type and screen to a type and cross? Are there some labs that I need to check? Is it time to get that additional large bore IV in while she's still got good veins? Are the right people in the room to take care of the bleeding and the problem? And if not, how long is it going to take to get them there? Um, is it time to move to the operating room? Because I want to be there sooner rather than later. I have a blood pressure machine. I have a, uh, a ventilator. I have all my equipment. I have invasive monitoring capability. Is it time to activate the MTP and how quickly can we get that blood in the room, especially platelets and cryoprecipitate? And I think it's important to understand, and this may be a talk for a later time, that the MTP is better than what we used to do, which is pushing a lot of IV fluids and some early red blood cells, but very late on the plasma and the platelets. 
And even though the MTP is much better than what we had in the past, and although we're using much less IV fluids during resuscitations of massive hemorrhage, it is important to understand that the MTP has significant physiologic limitations when we give it as a one-to-one-to-one ratio. In fact, there's a very eloquent little study done by John Hess and Rich Dutton up at the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center, where they took the components of an MTP, jumped it into a bucket, and then drew labs. Just that that bucket would be our patient. And the labs came back with a hematocrit of 29%. The platelets were 88,000, and the coagulation factor concentration was 65% normal. Now, when you compare that to whole blood, which has a crit of 40%, 150 to 400,000 platelets, and 100% of the coagulation factors, we see that the MTP is better than what we used to do, but it's still not as good as whole blood. And the important factor, as you said, Julie, in terms of keeping track of how much IV fluids we're giving, is that when you start adding IV fluids to the MTP that you're giving, all those laboratory values, low crit, low platelets, and a low coagulation factor concentration compared to whole blood only get worse. So um, I guess that's yeah. kind of what my thinking would be. Yeah. And and I definitely agree. This whole discussion of appropriate uh, volume resuscitation with blood is another podcast, which I'm going to strong arm you into doing with me. Um, unfortunately, none of the actions you described were taken for this patient. And 10 minutes after the call to the provider, blood pressure is now 77 over 40 with a mean arterial pressure of 52. Pulse is 136. The shock index is 1.7. And it's noted large clots are obtained with fundal massage. And there again is what you said, what, what blood loss am I not seeing? Well, now it's evident that she was bleeding into the uterus. There are clots that are being expressed. QBL um, is 530 milliliters. So that, when you add it to what we have already measured in the PACU, is 1,380 with a total from surgery of 2,080. So this is a perfect example of the statement, the patient is fine until they're not. And the map has dropped to 52 precipitously. So what are your thoughts about this patient now? Well, I I think it unfortunately brings up some really important clinical issues and and potential discussions for your listeners. One, her, her mean arterial pressure is 50. She's still tachycardic and her shock index is going up and she's passing large clots. And when I hear large clots, the hair on my neck goes up because we're going to talk about something called a clot conversion factor. But the most important thing that struck me was that this patient is not acting as if she's lost just two liters of blood. She's really acting like somebody who's lost more. And so we have a QBL of two liters, and I'm looking at her map and her pressure, her her pulse and her stroke index, and I'm asking myself, 
is it possible she's lost closer to 2,500 cc's or even more? And now she's up to 40% of her uh, estimated blood volume. And it these levels of blood loss, Julie, small differences in a QBL can make a huge difference in a patient's condition. Clearly, this patient is, as we say, quote, falling off the cliff, and, and she's clearly in shock, in my opinion. Second, I want to talk a little bit about measurement of blood clots during hemorrhage, their effect when calculating QBL, and a concept, as I mentioned before, clot conversion factor. And be, before I get too far down the road, I, I just want to preface this by saying this is mainly the world according to me. Um, and, and so I, I, there's, you're not going to find a huge amount of clinical data in this, but as I said, I've, I've had the privilege of working in OB now for a while and, and, and have, and had the privilege as well of, of starting an accredited team. And so those people lose a little bit of blood. And yeah. what I have found was, is a, in simply put a CC, a clot is not a CC, a whole blood. Um, and so the physiologic rationale behind my thinking with regards to the clot conversion factor was that, um, when we measure a, a patient's hematocrit, we're looking at the proportion of red cells in the blood sample, which is really the red blood cell density. So if we consider liquid blood loss during hemorrhage, generally speaking, when making a QBL determination, once again, with liquid blood, we assume that the weight difference between the dry and wet weight in grams is equivalent to a cc of whole blood. This is only going to be true if the hematocrit or the density of the red cells in the material weighed, or OR lap or whatever, is the same as the hematocrit in the patient at the time that we weigh it. I know that's going to get a little bit so what you're saying is you're comparing liquid blood and you're basing your measurement of, of grams lost based on liquid blood that would be in the patient. Right. When we weigh something and we determine a QBL, it's assuming that what we're weighing is liquid blood because we're comparing liquid blood that we're measuring with liquid blood in the patient. I wish I had a better way of saying this. <laughs> well, I think I think it's it's pretty it's pretty clear that you know we oftentimes do measure liquid blood. Yeah, I mean, that's but cool. then the clot is different. Right. So, so tell me how the clot's different. So let's consider clot loss during hemorrhage. The density or the hematocrit of red blood cells in a clot measured at the time of hemorrhage, that hematocrit or that density of red blood cells is increased compared to the density or the hematocrit of the blood circulating in the patient at the time she's bleeding. And, and it's due to the loss of plasma during clot formation and clot contraction. Hence, the number of red cells that are lost in a blood clot is greater than the number of cells lost in an equivalent weight of liquid blood for a similar QBL measured in grams. And so what this means is, is that clot, the red cell mass is much denser than we have with regard to red cell mass of liquid whole blood. And so in fact, we've lost more blood than the QBL weight of the clot would suggest. So once again, this is one of those concepts I think about at two in the morning when I've got a cigar and again, it's in my hand. Um, <laughs> so what I thought, what I've done in the OR when I look at clots 
and the the nurse says, "Hey, I got this huge clot, and it weighed 800 cc's. Eight, you know, there was 800 cc, 800 grams, 800 cc's of blood. I'll take that that number that the nurse gives me, that 800 cc's, and I'll I'll use a clot conversion factor anywhere from 1.5 to to two, and it may be hematocrit dependent. It would this would be a great study for some OB anesthesia fellow." And so what that means is, is that if you pull out 500 cc's of clot, that may actually reflect another 750 to 1,000 cc's of additional blood loss. And when I've gone back and compared how the patient looks in terms of vital signs and shock index with what my QBL is, by using this clot conversion factor, when they tell me how much a clot weight, it now marries the two in a much more... um, uh, um, they seem to correlate better. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of true for this patient because she looks like she's lost more than was actually measured. So if you take, I think she lost, uh, uh, let's see, there was large clots. So she had, um, she was up to two liters of blood loss. Uh, Mm -hmm. now with, uh, I think she had, what brought her up to two liters was the 500 cc of clot. Um, mm-hmm. If we use a clot conversion factor of say two, um, she's now lost an extra liter. So now she's up to 2,500 cc's instead of two liters. Um, and, and things start happening quickly as you move through two liters to 2,500 cc's to, to three liters. So I think what the clot conversion factor, and I would encourage your, your readers to, to do their own little study, when measuring clots and, and see what they think. But for me, using this clot conversion factor has improved the accuracy of QBL. Um, and this becomes particularly important, as we've said, in those patients such as ours, where there's already been an appreciable blood loss, followed by more clots being expressed from the uterus. Um, and I think the clinical importance of this is that providers can be falsely reassured with a bleeding obstetric patient who may look clinically stable based on vital signs and a, quote, acceptable, unquote, QBL without using the clot conversion factor, but may actually have lost a clinic, clinically significant percentage of their estimated blood volume, which would change the level of concern and possibly therapeutic decision making. I, I think that the take home here is if you've got clots, you may have more blood loss than you think, you know, regardless of what the actual conversion factor is. And just that awareness, I think, can prompt people to be more prepared. Absolutely. In my clinical experience, when when a patient's passing clots, you're basically always behind in what you think is their QBL. Um and sometimes with the with the clinical vital signs would suggest. Uh, so with our patient, as I said, there may be an additional 500 cc's or more of additional blood loss. We're moving quickly through at least two liters, which is about 33% of her estimated blood volume. If we use the clot factor, conversion factor, we may be closer to 40 to maybe even 50% of her estimated blood volume. Once again, this patient's blood pressure, blood pressure was 77 with a heart rate of 136. I mean, she's, she's uh, fixing to do something bad. Yes, she is. Um, Spoken like a true Texan. Yeah. um, So, 
remember, at these blood levels of two liters or more, even small miscalculations can have grave clinical implications for the patient. So if we assume now she's lost at least 40% of her blood volume, maybe more, perfusion is severely decreased with this amount of blood loss. And without blood replacement uh, of some type, her hemoglobin's probably at the best seven grams per deciliter, maybe less. Once you lose 40% of your estimated blood volume, you've halved your cardiac output. So um, in the face of half the normal cardiac output and an anemia of a hemoglobin of seven, if you do the calculations, her oxygen delivery is below the critical threshold separating aerobic from anaerobic metabolism. She's now accumulating an oxygen debt, which means she's in shock. She has... Um, uh, she has moved into this emergent metabolic state resulting from the lack of adequate tissue oxygenation at the cellular level. Um, when this oxygen delivery to the cells, which is shock, is decreased, and we've now moved into this anaerobic state, we begin, as I said, accumulating this oxygen debt. And an oxygen debt, Julie, is nothing more than how deep the shock state is and for how long the patient was in shock. And the important thing about the accumulated oxygen debt is that for the patient to survive without organ dysfunction, sepsis, or death, this accumulated oxygen debt has to be repaid within a critical time frame. The analogy is if a patient is in shock, their body is simply writing hot checks but the bank lets you keep your account open as long as you promise to repay those overdraws, which is that oxygen debt, with a penalty and in a timely fashion. As this patient's shock progresses from compensated reversible shock, where her ability to maintain her oxygen delivery in the face of blood loss is effective, she then moved to a decompensated shock where the body's compensatory mechanisms have now failed to maintain adequate oxygen delivery that oxygen debt begins to accumulate. And now metabolically, that body is writing hot checks to the bank. At some point, she will have decompensated reversible shock where she's still able to repay that O2 debt in a timely fashion if the providers intervene correctly. But if not, she'll move from a decompensated reversible shock state to a decompensated irreversible shock state where that oxygen debt cannot re be repaid in a timely fashion and the patient experiences organ failure, sepsis, arrest, or possible death. So at this point, the analogy is, is the bank has closed your account because you failed to repay those overdraws, which is the oxygen debt in a timely fashion. So in this patient, once there's a two liter blood loss, the physiologic advantage of pregnancy that we spoke about earlier in the podcast has been exhausted. We're now essentially treating a trauma patient, and she should be resuscitated just like any other uh, trauma patient. That's an important point because we, you know, I, I remember early in the days when um, I was working with trying to get MTPs established, we had to really work with the blood bank to convince them that we had a, we had a large enough blood loss that we warranted even an MTP being delivered to the OB patient. Of course, this was several years ago. Now I think we've kind of stepped into another realm. So not now we're getting MTPs, 
but our patients are trauma patients. And I think it's just a, it's a mental change, but I think that mental switch helps us to make the switch to be more active. And as you said, it's time. You are now racing against time with these patients to get their ability to deliver oxygen reestablished to their cells. So back to our patient. The nurse calls the CRNA to the bedside and the nurse anesthetist begins norepinephrine. The blood pressure is now 52 over 48. That's a mean arterial blood pressure of 36. Pulse is 117 and the shock index is 2.2. I think that's important because some people may think that drop in heart rate is reassuring, but actually when you look at the shock index, it is not reassuring at all. Um, This patient has lost, we know at least 2,080 milliliters of blood since birth and probably more if we use the clot conversion factor We know that 1,200 milliliters of IV fluid was given in the OR, but we're not sure how much has been given since. Uh, We've established that the patient has not been adequately volume resuscitated, but I'm wondering what is the effect of vasopressors in this patient? Well, I thought you brought up some great points. One, with a blood pressure of 52, um, I mean, she's essentially pre-arrest, and this is in my clinical experience, reflected by the fact that her, her heart rate's going down in the face of worsening shock index. And I begin to worry if some of her slowing of heart rate is due to cardiac ischemia for probably a, a variety of reasons. Um, she's probably hypothermic. She's acidotic. She even may be a little bit coagulopathic. So now she's in the lethal triad. Um, but I once again, shock isn't a blood pressure, it's a lack of perfusion. And artificially elevating her blood pressure with a vasopressor will not correct the perfusion pressure. I'm sorry, will not correct the perfusion problem. It won't do anything towards paying back that oxygen debt that we talked about. As I said, this patient's near arrest with failing vital signs, worsening shock index at 2.2. We have discussed the deleterious effects of shock on blood vessel endothelium. So not only does the endothelial ischemia and damage uh, to the endothelium ultimately progress to coagulopathy, but the endothelium itself loses the ability to respond to endogenous or exogenous exogenous vasopressors, something we'll call vasoplegia. It may explain why hanging the norepinephrine really didn't do a whole lot. Vasopressors could have a role during resuscitation of hemorrhagic shock only if used as a temporizing agent and should only be used in conjunction with a resuscitation strategy that includes a blood product resembling whole blood. I hope you notice I keep using the words whole blood and hemorrhage resuscitation in the same sentence. I think this is where we're headed with regards to resuscitating OB patients with massive hemorrhage, just as we currently do with trauma patients. Obviously, this patient needed volume replacement much earlier. But what would be your management strategy for this patient? I mean, she's literally hanging on the cusp of cardiac arrest. Correct. Well, I think 
first you have to get your arms around the fact that the fluid going into the patient during a significant maternal hemorrhage resuscitation should resemble the fluid coming out of the patient. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And by that, I'm talking about whole blood, as I've said previously, and that's a story for another time. But also, I think we have to understand the limitations of our massive transfusion protocol. The key resuscitation concepts involve reestablishing oxygen delivery, stopping further O2 debt accumulation, and paying back an existing oxygen debt. And we do that by giving a blood product, such as hemoglobin, and maintaining an adequate cardiac output. Volume resuscitation, activating the MTP resuscitation as a one-to-one-to-one-to-one, which means early platelets and early cryo, permits an administration of a balanced resuscitation product, allowing uh, providers to stay in the ballpark, so to speak, giving volume, oxygen delivery, and clotting potential when massive hemorrhage is going. The MTP allows us to quickly pump fluid into a bleeding patient that somewhat resembles the fluid they are losing. Once again, platelets and cryo added to traditional plasma and red blood cells, particularly in a patient with a QBL approaching 2,000 cc's. And I just want to emphasize when you, at least in my practice, um, when I have a patient who's approaching two liters of blood loss, and certainly if I think they're still bleeding, I'm putting platelets and cryo in the first round of the MTP. Some some institutions don't do that. I respect that. But um, as, I'll, as I talk about later, you know, if I've given a, a unit or two of red cells, a unit or two of platelets, maybe some cryo that, you know, looking back, they may not have needed. Uh, the danger is getting behind on a patient who's who's massively hemorrhaging. And certainly in this patient, it would be impossible to get behind. So um, understanding you need to uh, keep oxygen delivery and the concept of that with adequate cardiac output, um, oxygen, uh, hemoglobin levels and O2 saturation, adequate volume resuscitation with early platelet cryo uh, in patients who are, are significantly bleeding is the first step. Inhibition of clot lysis with early TXA. I've bumped my TXA from a gram initially IV and then a gram uh, as an infusion over six or eight hours to two grams of TXA uh, up front. It functions as an antifibrinolytic. It inhibits complement activation and it's endothelial friendly. So there's a lot more that TXA is doing than just functioning as an antifibrinolytic. We've talked about the importance of the endothelium, and it's important to preserve or resuscitate the endothelium, uh, and especially the endothelial glycocalyx that we talked about. And we can do that effectively with the administration of plasma. So by giving an MTP, uh, we're also uh, not only providing volume and oxygen carrying capacity and clotting potential, but we're also doing great things for the endothelium. And then it's important to know when to convert to a lab-driven volume resuscitation, when we can back off the MTP and start drawing labs. And for me, this is when I'm assured that the hemorrhage is being controlled or is controlled. Uh, we've got a clear diagnosis of what's been bleeding. It's been uh, addressed successfully. And I'm starting to see stabilization of critical tissue perfusion parameters, such as uh, shock index and, um, and vital signs. 
Well, as as you um, if you have listened to the the case that we've talked about uh, when Stephanie and I first uh, published it, this patient suffered cardiac arrest, had long term sequelae, including renal failure, and. You know, I think part of the reason that both Alan and I felt strongly about doing this podcast is we continue to see severe hemorrhage. We continue to see it. And we've known for a long time that this is a huge, huge issue with severe maternal morbidity and mortality. So it's it's important for every single OB provider, whether you're in a, a level one hospital or a level four hospital, to understand the physiology of pregnancy and the physiology of volume replacement. So we we talked a lot about physiology. And for some people, that's, you know, they may need to listen to the podcast a couple times. So the way I would like to end this podcast is just by going through a couple of the key points that will really help providers, nurses, physicians, anesthesiologists, give them some some strategies or some things to think about for caring for pregnant patients with severe hemorrhage. So you want to start you you've got a list of key key points and and i have to say some of them are right up my alley because i talk about with simulation situation awareness communication um getting the room organized getting the room set up to deal with the next big thing that's going to happen so i'll i'll let you take off with with your list well i you know i feel like i almost need to apologize cuz we've had a huge physiology data dump here. Uh, and we've covered a lot of ground that I've looked at over, you know, decades here in about an hour plus. But I think when you drill it all down to taking care of these patients, as I tried to kind of take a 30,000 foot view is number one, when you have a patient who has got a severe maternal hemorrhage or even a massive maternal hemorrhage, the most important thing is to take a breath, look around, which means develop some kind of situational awareness. What, what do you think is going on? And then make a call. You know, here's what I think is going on. I make a prediction. Let's take an action of some types. Let's intervene on some level. Let's get another IV in. Let's change to a type and cross. Let's activate the MTP, whatever it is. Make a call when confronted, when confronted with that obstetric bleeding patient. Certainly when they have a QBL of 1,500 cc's with ongoing blood loss or a QBL for sure of two liters or greater. It's important to believe your instincts. If what you're observing doesn't look or feel right, get another set of eyes on the situation. It's important to think ahead of time about what your mental triggers should be that moves you to escalating the care of that patient who's bleeding. In the middle of a major hemorrhage, it's going to be hard to think of those. But think about after listening to the podcast, what, what would I have to see in order to trigger the next set of actions that I think would be in the patient's best interest? Once a patient's in shock and accumulating an oxygen debt, you are on the clock. A successful resuscitation versus irreversible shock and death is a competition in time. Can I, can I interject something sure. here just quickly? Um, 
I think this is crucial. And even if every single provider going into a maternal hemorrhage kind of established in their mind, okay, this is the criteria where I think we need to move and verbalizes that to the team. That verbalization of that criteria helps the whole team around that provider to be in the same mental mindset as that provider. So the nurse will hear that and go, okay, I'm going to call the charge nurse. We're going to get the OR set up, or I'm going to make sure we've got an OVO an OR available. I'm going to make sure we've got this person, this person, and this person. And that's exactly what you want. You know, when when you determine there's a problem, that's not when you want to start the response. You want to start the response so that it's ready when it's needed. So I, I really appreciate that point. And, and just wish people would verbalize that to, to the the people around them, their team. Yeah. I, I had a buddy that used to tell me, um, you know, when you go into these stressful situations, it's important to park your ego at the door uh, <laughs> and, and, and really communicate well to align your mental models. You know, uh, I've walked yeah. to the nurse and say, Hey, here's what I think's going on. If you think, you know, I'm way off track, please tell me if you see me doing something stupid, please tell me. Um, the chain of command is there for patient safety and it needs to be used early. If you're not getting the response that you feel the patient deserves. Once again, shock is not a blood pressure, but it's the best non-invasive marker we have. Keep looking for evidence that supports or refutes your clinical impression. The clinical appearance of the patient versus the QBL, do they match up such as our patient at some point towards the end of the clinical course in ours, it just didn't. I mean, she had a blood pressure of 77 and a heart rate of 150. And we thought maybe she had a two liter blood loss. In my clinical experience, those two don't match up. Add shock index to your routine vital signs when considering an ongoing postpartum hemorrhage. In fact, it may be your fifth vital sign. I'd encourage you guys to use, or folks to use the clot conversion factor when calculating QBL, see if it works for you may want to do your own little research project. Drawing a few tubes of blood to update the lab is another piece of decision-making information. Remember, you can't find a fever unless you take a temperature. So draw the labs. You might get surprised. It's okay to watch the patient you're concerned about for an extra hour or two in labor and delivery. Remember, labor and delivery is an acute care ward. Once they get to the postpartum floor, it's a chronic care ward, and you may have a ward up there with two nurses and 50 patients. If you activate the MTP and the patient doesn't need it, it's not a big deal. Just send the blood bank. No harm, no foul. The corollary to that is that it's not the end of the world if the patient gets an extra unit of red cells or plasma. It's really hard to catch up with a hypotensive, shocky patient. And finally, resuscitation from maternal hemorrhage is about constantly improving your ability to make an accurate decision and respond effectively. It's about building bridges and not burning them. I, I think that's important because um, I know when I've worked with um, OB teams on hemorrhage, it took us really, it was an ongoing process. It took several simulation cycles to really refine the process of responding and responding in a timely manner. 
So I, I think that's constant, that, that idea that we're constantly striving to get better at this and constantly striving to better understand it and better communicate with each other and have a better team response is one that's important. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes practice. And hopefully we don't get to practice a whole lot. Uh, well, hopefully we get to practice in simulation and not on actual patients. But um, hopefully if you catch the patient early enough, you you may not have to go into this severe range that, that we were talking about with this patient. So I think this has been a great discussion about what you need to think about with severe obstetric hemorrhage. And I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Dr. Alan Frankfurt, for sharing your expertise on volume replacement and your thoughts about managing severe obstetric hemorrhage with us. And to the listeners, thank you for listening. This has been a, a very heavy physiology long podcast, but I really hope it will be helpful and some of the things that we talked about will resonate with you the next time you have an OB hemorrhage. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on X at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.